Richard Clark Cabot, he grew up privileged, grew up in Boston to a very privileged family, and not just economically privileged, but uh, intellectually very impressive family. Uh, Cabot himself went on to become a doctor, achieved all kinds of recognition for different things he had done. Just uh, uh, one of these brilliant scientific minds, uh, right? But he's most well-known for something that's pretty interesting, a a fascinating experiment that he conducted. And he was concerned about the growing level of crime and juvenile delinquency in Boston. Uh, This was back in the 1930s. And uh, he wanted to do something about it. And so he thought he knew just what would make a difference. And uh, what he decided to do, he wanted to test his theory. He's a scientist, so he wanted to test his theory. So he enrolled about 500 young boys in a program where they were set up with a mentor. Uh, So boys who were kind of already at risk of becoming juvenile delinquents, they were matched with a mentor in the hopes that that would prevent them from kind of really falling into a life of crime. And kind of like uh, a precursor to like a Big Brother program, right? That's the same kind of idea. And so because he was a scientist, though, he, he didn't just start the mentoring program. He started it as an experiment, and he wanted to know what would be the long-term outcome of this kind of a program. So he created uh, one group of boys who had a mentor, and then he created another group of boys with no mentor, like a a control group, you might say. And so this one group, they got mentoring, they got one-on-one care, they got academic tutoring, medical care, these kinds of things. The other group didn't get those things. And so Cabot set up this experiment to find out which of these two groups uh, would, would turn out better, what outcome would there be. And, and he wanted to measure the outcome, really specifically, of his mentoring and care program. Would it really help these boys not go on to grow up and to be uh, delinquents and criminals and things like this? Well, you know, this, this kind of mentoring, it still goes on all over the place today. I mean, even here in Walla Walla, you can probably imagine things like this, right? And so you would assume based on just what we see today, that that his experiment was a success, that the mentoring really made a difference, right? You'd be wrong. Uh, Fascinating experiment. In the initial follow-up with these boys, they found out that the two groups, the one that got the mentoring, the one that didn't, no discernible difference in their behavior, okay? That was just a few years after. So, okay, you think, well, maybe it hadn't kicked in yet. And so they measured the boys uh, 10 years later. No measurable difference then. Well, uh, Cabot had passed away, and other scientists came in, and the use of computers came in, and they were able to track down almost all the participants 30 years later. 30 years later, they were able to track down almost everybody. And guess what? By this time, there was a difference, but not at all the difference that you'd imagine. The 30 years later, the boys who received the mentoring and care actually had higher uh, rate of problems than the group that didn't receive the care. So uh, higher alcoholism, higher crime rate, higher rate of incarceration, all those sorts of things. And so, so Cabot, the scientist, set out to create one thing, this, this program that would help kids not fall into a life of crime, but he ended up creating a totally different outcome, right? And his study has gone on to help social scientists, but not at all in the way that he imagined. Isn't that interesting? Well, uh, you know, we, we all have desired outcomes in our life, right? Things we'd love to see differently. Maybe it's our personal life. Maybe it's our relationships. Maybe just here in the church. Uh, and I think it's clear, though, that, that having an outcome and having all the right things in place to actually achieve that outcome are, are two different things, right? And we're going to talk this morning about outcomes, about actually seeing the kind of things that God wants us to be experiencing. And last week, if you were here, we began the series, This Is Us, by talking about 
us. We're using this book of 1 John to, uh, to, to learn about ourselves, especially during this time of pastoral transition. We're using God's Word to bring really focus and clarity to, to what, it, what makes us us, what makes us us, and what makes us distinctive, what should matter the most to us, how we should be living. All these sorts of things are going to be our focus over these next few weeks. And so as we get started, you can go ahead and open up your Bible to 1 John towards the end of your Bible there, or if you're on your phone, you just keep, right? That's how you find it on the phone. Uh, and last week, we kind of introduced this book of First John. It might be the, the latest book in the New Testament, the last one to be written. Don't know that for sure, but uh, strong evidence to point to that. And, and it was written to a church that, that was confused, a church that, uh, that needed some clarity. You could say it was a church that uh, had lost sense of its desired outcome. And First uh, John was written to a church in the city of Ephesus, a major city in the ancient Roman world, one of the biggest cities at the time. And this, this church in Ephesus, I told you last week, they started off so strong with miraculous things happening, uh, uh, the huge impact that they made in their community, such that they even sparked a citywide riot. I mean, if you can imagine that. But by the time John writes to them here in First John, things had changed. And a couple of generations had come and gone, and all the amazing things that started this church were kind of distant memories, things of the past. And so some of the later church members, they were kind of complacent. They'd lost their focus a bit. They, uh, this church that had this great long history was now at a bit of a turning point, and, and, uh, and John, so he's one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, he writes this letter to them to, to just remind them of things that are the most important. And so because this is a letter about what a church should be focused on, it seems like a helpful way for us to start this new year, to start this new chapter. We want to keep our focus uh, where it needs to be during this time of, of pastoral transition. And so the letter First John, it starts off, if you were here last week, you remember, it starts off talking about the most important thing, how the church relates to Jesus. And if you were here, we, we talked about that, about us, right? And uh, John starts off his letter just reminding the church that uh, what defines them is fellowship, not just fellowship with each other, but fellowship that's built around God and his son Jesus. He says in uh, chapter 1, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, the truth about Jesus, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So what, what makes us us is being united with each other, leaders, church members, all those people, and being united around Jesus, as we said last week. So we said it this way, us is fellowship with God and fellowship with each other. And so this morning, we're going to continue to explore what it means to, for, for us to have that kind of fellowship, because being a part of us is not easy. It doesn't come naturally. It's, uh, sometimes we aren't even sure if it's working, Right? And that's why this week I want us to turn our attention to another very important aspect of us. Uh, I want us to put our usness to the test, if you will. Uh, how do we know that us is really working? How do we know what we're supposed to be doing? Well, John tells us in 1 John, right at the beginning of chapter 2, that's where we'll be today, uh, John lays out the test of us, you might say. We talked last week about fellowship, about what makes us us, and John tells us this morning, how do we know that fellowship is happening, that it's really working? So look with me at uh, chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 3. We know that we have come to know him, talking about Jesus, if we obey his commands. 
Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. So see, our fellowship makes us us, but how is that fellowship demonstrated? What's the outcome? Well, John tells us it's demonstrated by obedience, obeying God. Whoever claims to know him, to, to live in fellowship, must obey him, must obey his commands. The fellowship that's so valuable, that provides joy for us and hope for the world, is demonstrated by us obeying God's commands. We could say it this way, our external obedience is a measure of our internal fellowship. Let me say that again. Our external obedience is a measure of our internal fellowship. We know that this us is working here by the way it shows up out there. As you know, I'm the pastor of adult discipleship here at Trinity. If you didn't know that, nice to meet you. Uh, People ask me all the time, though, uh, what do you do all day? Right, and um, nothing makes you feel quite so valued like that question does. But, but in a, in a sense, it's a legitimate question because people are very, very fuzzy on discipleship. Uh, I mean, how do you? What is it? What do? You, how do you know that you're a disciple? People are very fuzzy about these things. Most people know. Okay, you got to have like a relationship with Jesus, and if you kind of you know press people a little bit, they'll say, "Well, yeah, it's a pretty good idea if you like read your Bible and pray on a regular basis." And if you keep pushing, then people might say, "Well, yeah, you know, it's a really good idea to pray like not just when you need something, but kind of all the time, like you're having a conversation, because that's how you have healthy relationships with people. You talk to them all the time, you know. But if you if you kind of keep pushing, things get get really cloudy for most of us at that point. Uh, beyond those kinds of simple things, what is discipleship? How do we know we're being obedient? Uh, how, how do we measure the outcomes, like we talked about with this, this study of juvenile delinquents? I mean, discipleship's obviously important because John tells us right here, he says, we know we've come to know him if we obey his commands. But what does that really look like, right? Well, hopefully it doesn't surprise you that as the pastor of adult discipleship, I spent a lot of time thinking about discipleship and, and finding meaningful ways to answer these kinds of questions. And I want to share something with you that I've shared with our growth group leaders uh, quite a bit. You know, here at Trinity, our growth groups are really a key piece of, of what uh, it means to be a growing disciple, not because you're required to be in a growth group, but because it gives you the tools and the relationships to be able to live out this kind of obedience, so little, little groups of us that gather to to live out obedience and see the kind of outcomes that we want. And so, so as we answer this question of what does following Jesus really look like for us, I want us to examine how Jesus himself answered that question. In the Gospel of Matthew, it records, among other things, Jesus' final week before he's crucified. And in this final week, Jesus has a lot of frank conversations with people. He knows his time is short. He's got a lot of things still on the table. And uh, one of the things that Jesus talks about this final week, he tells a parable about the very thing we're talking about, about obedience. And uh, I want us to look at this parable together briefly because I think it helps us understand what it means for us to live in obedience to Jesus, how our, our external obedience really is a measure of our internal fellowship. So let's just read the parable. You don't have to turn there. We'll have it on the screens here, but if you want to look at it later, it's Matthew 21, starting at verse 28. So take a look at this. What do you think? This is Jesus talking. There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first. He said, son, go work in the vineyard. I will not, the first said, but he later changed his mind and went. 
And then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He said, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? So Jesus, he's, he's talking to religious leaders in his day, and this question is what Jesus poses to them. Which of the two sons was obedient, right? And there's two youngish boys, uh, sons of a very gracious father. You know, he's asking them. He's not demanding them. And, and they both seem to have at least a little bit of experience in the family vineyard. They both know what kind of work that they need to be doing. That's not the issue. They understand what's being asked. But these two sons have very different responses to the father. The first says, he won't go. Well, that sounds like a lack of obedience, right? But then, plot twist, he decides he does go and work in the vineyard after all. And so the father goes to the second son. He's just the opposite. He tells the father, sure, sure, I'll go work. Sounds like obedience. But it turns out he doesn't go and work after all. And so with that story, with that parable, uh, Jesus asks these religious leaders, these folks who are are skeptical of Jesus, uh, which of the two did what his father wanted? So just to keep us all dialed in, I'll ask you the same question. Which of the two did what his father wanted? I love that confidence, yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, Matthew goes on to tell us their response. I think I heard a little bit of this. The first, that's what they say. So I don't know if we should be pleased or worried if, if our answer is the same as the Pharisees, right? But it's, that's right, it's indeed the first one. And as I've shared this parable with our growth group leaders, we framed it out with a, a simple but really very important idea. We call it outcome-based disciple-making. That, that obedience to Jesus is measured not by words, not by lip service, but by outcomes, by actually doing the things that Jesus wants us to do. And I've challenged our group leaders to, as, they, as they lead people in their groups, they lead them to outcomes in their faith, to... to So the obedience actually shows up in our lives, right? Not just talked about. We move beyond just reading the Bible and praying, which are good foundational pieces, but moving towards what 1 John talks about. We know we have come to know him if we obey his commands. And I think it's worth noting that the Pharisees, they answered the question the same way we did. They answered maybe with a little more confidence than we did, but, uh, but they knew what obedience looked like. Uh, they knew what they should be doing, reading their Bible, praying, those kinds of things. But I want you to listen to how Jesus responds when they answer. He said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. Ouch. That's, that's kind of mean, right? So, I mean, I know we got a lot of uh, educators out here, people who are... Uh, teachers and things like that. So this is a really great teaching moment that Jesus uh, lays out here. He asks the classic question, right? And they answer it correctly. And then he insults them personally. So if you're an educator, you know, take a tip of teaching like Jesus 101 right there. Yeah. Sunday school teachers, you could try this too. Sure, Jesus. Why does Jesus come down so hard on them? I mean, they answered the question. They know what to do. I think the reason he's so frustrated is not because they don't know what to do. It's not a lack of understanding, not a lack of instructions. It's totally the opposite. They know exactly what to do. They're just not doing it. And what they're missing is really a failure to submit to Jesus' authority. They don't trust him. They, they reject the role that he wants to play in their lives. They're too uh, prideful to give up control to Jesus. So, so they know the right things to do, but they're not actually doing them. And honestly, I think a lot of times that's the same problem that we have. 
We know that being a disciple, that obeying Jesus means praying, reading the Bible, some other stuff. But are we really seeing the outcomes that we want in our lives? If our external obedience is a measure of our internal fellowship, are we really pleased with the results? I think oftentimes we're missing something, and we're missing the same thing they are. We fail to give Jesus full authority in our lives. We fail to submit ourselves completely to him. And that's ultimately what John is getting at when he tells us, we know we've come to know him if we obey his commands. Whoever says I know him but doesn't do what he commands is a liar. The truth is not in that person. That's the key, doing some of the right things but missing out on submitting to Jesus' authority. And then John adds this. We didn't read this part before. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Our external obedience is a measure of our internal fellowship. We need to live as Jesus lived, seeing the kinds of outcomes in our lives that he wants us to have. So our challenge is to figure out what does that look like here in our context? How, do, how does this group of us, this fellowship called Trinity, how do we live as Jesus lived? And I think there's two answers to that question. One answer for when we are us gathered together here and a slightly different answer when we're us scattered around our homes and our workplaces, schools here in the valley. And uh, we've said many times over the years that we're the church gathered, but we're still the church when we're scattered, right? So when we're gathered together, we have one outcome, one purpose in mind, and that purpose is to make disciples. That's uh, uh, all the things we do here at Trinity are built around that key idea. Our singular focus is that, and that's the job that Jesus himself gave us. So we want to be faithful to him, submitting ourselves to his authority. In fact, he even says this when he, when he tells us what our job is. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So he starts off here the same idea of authority, right? And you can hear echoes in the Great Commission of what John says in our passage in 1 John. Obedience to Jesus' commands built on Jesus' authority, right? So when we're gathered as us, our job, our focus is to make disciples. Each of us helping each of us submit to Jesus' authority. That's what we do because that's what Jesus asks us to do. The church makes disciples. So everything we do here at Trinity, we're gathered together, it has the purpose of making disciples. Our, our worship, uh, that's what we do. We, we uh, you know, uh, People raise their hands when they sing. It's a symbolic gesture of submitting yourself to Jesus' authority, that everything I have uh, belongs to you, right? Uh, our, uh, we teach from the Bible because we submit ourselves to its authority over our lives. Uh, our adult Bible fellowships, our children's ministry, student ministry, a starting point, grief share, all the things that we do are centered around making disciples, helping people grow in and practice their faith. That's why we don't have 600 things that we do at Trinity. We just have a few things, and we try to do them really well because the church makes disciples. And all of us have a role to play in that. Uh, Some of us big roles, some of us smaller roles, but we all have a role. That's why, as we talked about last week, getting involved becomes such a critical piece of fellowship of us because when we're together, each of us has a job given to us by Jesus. We make disciples, right? 
But there's another half of that statement. We talk about the church makes disciples when we're gathered, and disciples make a difference. That's our purpose when we're scattered. Our purpose out then, at that time, is to make a difference. Each of us, when we're gathered as a church, we're focused on making disciples. But honestly, the time that we spend together is, is a limited amount of time, a small portion of our lives. Uh, Pastor Thad shared with me something that he communicates to his children's ministry and student ministry staff. And, and they say a child or a student is in church an average of 40 hours in a year. But they're, uh, they're, that same student is at home with their parents like a thousand hours a year. So that's not time in school, that's not time sleeping, right? So that's one of the reasons we make partnering with parents such a, a big point of emphasis, because there's a lot more impact to be had in that thousand hours than there is in just 40 hours. Okay, well, in the same way, you and I, uh, we're at church at most 52 hours in a year, and honestly, like 40, Right? But we've got a lot more time at home, at work, with our family, pursuing hobbies, interests, those kinds of things. So what are we supposed to do with all that time? We make a difference. We use that time to make a difference. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what John is talking about, obeying his commands, doing the things that disciples do. And, you know, honestly, as I was preparing this message, I kind of struggled when I got to this point because uh, I wanted to provide just a lot of examples that would uh, resonate with us, that would inspire a lot of people, examples of making a difference, right? But the fact is, there's an infinite amount of examples because there's an infinite number of ways that you and I can make a difference. So I just started thinking about some of the ways that collectively we make a difference, kind of pooling our resources. And, you know, we host and equip a ministry to Spanish speakers, right? That needs support more than ever now. Uh, We partner with Blue Ridge Elementary together in a variety of ways. Our clothing dry, we support the staff, PTA, those kinds of things. Uh, Operation Christmas Child, something we do together that makes a difference. We uh, supply all our area schools with coffee, coffee fuels educators, we do that. Uh, All these kinds of things, we collectively work together to make a difference, okay? But then I started just thinking about just people I know, just individuals I know who make a difference. And we've got uh, like medical folks, uh, they're doing healing work every day. We've got a lot of different medical people. In fact, uh, one of our medical folks uh, saved a newborn baby's life this past week. That's amazing. I had nothing to do with that. That's somebody making a difference. I mean, really making a difference. Life and death, right? Uh, we've got folks who work at the penitentiary, you know, just reflecting Christ in the attitudes and the actions that they bring to that job. That cannot be easy in that environment. Uh, I don't have anything to do with that. We've got folks who work in education, Shaping the future, influencing young people for Christ, and having been a teacher myself, I know that is not easy. Not easy to do. Uh, we got folks that work in the food industry, just serving other people, making a difference in the way they do that. Yeah. Uh, mental health, uh, retail, uh, there's so many possibilities. People are just living out their faith in front of their coworkers and friends, in front of their neighbors, just, just finding ways to make a difference, right? There's, there's just too many for us to mention. We'd be here all day if I gave you all the examples. But, but the point is that disciples make a difference. And if you're already doing these kinds of things, that's great. I want to challenge you just to be even more intentional about them because our external obedience is a real measure of our internal fellowship. But if you're, if you're struggling to find ways where you can really make a difference in your own life, I'm just going to give you three super simple things that you can think about. You can do these almost anywhere, anytime, just three simple ways to make a difference. And the first is just 
words of affirmation. Just uh, what an easy way to be a blessing to someone. Just uh, send somebody a text or a handwritten note. It doesn't take that long to handwrite a note. Uh, or just stop a coworker in the hallway and tell them something good. You know, uh, Mark Twain famously said, I can live for two months on a good compliment, right? Uh, just simple conversations, words of affirmation can be so powerful. And of course, the most powerful words are uh, the life-changing message of the gospel, but uh, you'd be surprised how just simple words of affirmation could be a gateway to more meaningful conversations, right? Second thing, acts of kindness. Just just be kind. Look for ways to, uh, to help somebody out. Another great gateway to a bigger relationship. There's a thousand ways you can do this kind of thing in your own neighborhood, at work, school, whatever. Just a simple thing. Just look out for ways that you can help somebody else, being responsive to people's needs. And the third simple idea, any, any, anytime, anywhere, gifts. I'm just talking about just totally random gift giving. Uh, we've actually done this with some of our neighbors, and it's opened the door to, to deeper relationships. In fact, we were doing this enough, I guess, that one time our neighbors brought us dinner, and uh, that was pretty awesome. It was the worst and the best vegetarian chili I've ever had. It was, it was not tasty at all, but it was such an encouragement because it, it had let us know that our, our desire to reach out and connect to them and make a difference was not going unnoticed, you know, they... They brought us dinner. And so, so I mean, there's, there's three simple things you can do to, to get you thinking about how, uh, how you can make a difference in your own life. You don't have to wait for the church to organize something. You don't have to come and have a meeting with me and say, hey, I think we should do this. Just go do it. Go, go. Disciples, make a difference. Go for it, Right? So when we're the church scattered, when our whole lives are submitted to Jesus and his control, then we find ways to make a difference wherever we are, right? I think about it like this. Our family, we love to go to the coast, the Oregon coast. And uh, this past fall we went, usually we go in the summer, but this uh, past fall we went. Of course, the water was cold. I mean, it's always cold even in the summer, but it's like particularly cold in the fall. And uh, but there's just still, there's something so refreshing about just standing out on the beach, seeing all that water here in the ocean. And so right when we drove to town, we were going to go out to eat, but we wanted to stop by and, and just, just check out the, the beach. So we, we stopped the car and we told the kids, hey, we're just going to look, don't get wet. We're going out to eat, don't get wet. You can see where this is going, right? But there's just something so exciting, so invigorating about all that water and our three-year-old Proved that he, uh, you know, he's inching closer and closer to the edge, and before you know it, a kind of a bigger wave comes up, and boom, he's drenched, you know. And uh, I wish I could show you a picture so you could just see the joy that he had on his face. Uh, I can't show you a picture because he ripped his pants off and he's running around on the beach naked from the waist down. But uh, he's just so drawn to the water he couldn't resist, right? Well, that's what we want to create. Uh, we want this valley to be so close to us that they can't help but feel the love. So close to the water, you can't help but get wet, right? But that's not going to happen if we're not the church scattered, if we're not making a difference. We've prayed a prayer uh, from the book of Habakkuk many, many times. We pray that our valley would be filled with the knowledge of God's glory like the waters cover the sea. And the way that's going to happen is each of us making a difference. 
So I can't give you a, a perfect example that's going to suit your life other than just to say, submit yourself to Jesus' authority. See how he leads. Think about your own work. Think about your family as your mission field. Think about your disposable time. That, that's time that's not spent at work, not spent with your family. Think about that as a kingdom resource, something to be used to make a difference for God's service. And uh, you start to think about that, then, then soon everybody around you is going to be drawn to you or drawn to Christ in you, I should say. So the church makes disciples, and disciples make a difference. Uh, I heard a pastor, uh, Michael Frost, one time talk about the same kind of idea, and he used a great analogy I'm going to share with you. Uh, you know when you go to the movies, right, you see the previews, and the previews are just little, little snippets of movies that are coming, and they're designed to kind of tell you a little bit about that movie, right? But really what they're designed to do is to make you want to go and see that movie. They're supposed to be so appealing that you think, oh man, I've got to go and see what happens next. Those coming attractions, right? Well, you and I, we're the coming attractions because we know that Jesus' kingdom is coming and it's going to be more amazing than any movie that anybody's ever seen. But we're the coming attractions. We're, we're designed to be so appealing that people can't help but get close to us and then get wet, right? Uh, we're the preview of all the amazing things that God wants to do in the world. And so we've got to live in a way that really makes a difference. I mean, is our, is our life an invitation for people to come and see more of it, to people to come and be a part of us? Our external obedience is a measure of our internal fellowship. We want to be drawing people closer and closer to Jesus as we ourselves are drawn closer and closer to Him. And so when we talk about this is us, we're talking about something really amazing a fellowship that's built on being united, not just with each other like a club, but, but being united with God through Jesus. We have a very unique fellowship, and it's something that the whole world needs. And this morning we've talked about this test, how we know that this fellowship is really happening, and the identifying marker is that obedience. Our external obedience is a measure of our internal Fellowship, And we demonstrate that through these outcomes, just like Jesus talks about, making disciples and making a difference. Let me pray. God, we want to follow your example of uh, laying down our lives for the sake of other people. We want to follow the example that you give us in just submitting ourselves completely to God's will. And we know that as we do that, then we're going to see and experience uh, amazing things. Uh, we want to be a church that is not only rich in internal fellowship, but is rich in the way we serve you and the way we reflect you in the world. Help us not only in the time that we're gathered, but in the time that we're scattered so that we can go and make a difference in your name and for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.